Okay. Next week, Jeannot from Haiti is going to be here. So I encourage you guys to come and be a part of that and invite your friends. I'm sure he's going to be sharing with us the progress of the cafeteria that we're building as well as some other things. And so please come and show your support, not only uh, for him, but just for the work that is taking place there in Haiti that he is overseeing. Uh, Let's show our uh, interest in those areas. And so we're interested, and so let's make sure that we are here for that so that we can uh, represent that. And so I want to let you guys know about that. Also, a reminder, Sunday we're going to continue our series, Believe, I'm excited about the series. Michael did a great job Sunday, a great teaching, and so we'll be continuing that uh, Sunday as well. But today, tonight, whatever this is, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about the scriptures and interpretation and how that takes place. And I want to pause and take a moment of prayer uh, just as we begin. Father, as we look at what it is to interpret the scripture. Father, may we be directed by your spirit. May you give us insight and understanding. And I pray above all that after this time, we would be more fascinated with what the scriptures are, more intrigued about all that they contain and desirous to find out more and spend more time Inquiring, So I pray that you would give us a hunger for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I wanted to do in talking about this was to challenge how we think. Because I believe that many times Christians have a very simplistic idea because it makes us feel comfortable. And so it's easy to grab hold of something that's simple and to say, yeah, I have this confidence. And we have these little sayings, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, Those kinds of things that just make us feel, yeah, we'll rally around these things. But I want to delve into these things a little bit more deeply. For example, when we say, is the Bible true? What do we mean by that? And even just saying that, to challenge something like that, well, is the Bible true? And if you were to say, well, everyone would get uneasy. What do you mean, well? you got to tell us. what You believe it's true, right? Well, there are different explorations of what we talk about when we say it's true. For example, when I say that I believe that Jesus died, that he rose again from the dead, I believe that's true. I'm believing that that is a fact, something that actually happened. But when we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, is that true? Well, no, it's a story. It's a parable, right? We know that it's not an event that actually happened, but is there truth being proclaimed in that story? Yes, we believe that God is giving us deeper understanding about who he is in the character of the father and the two sons. We see a little bit more clearly about who we are But we see there's different aspects of what we say when we say, is the Bible true? Well, what sense do you mean and how do you mean that? Let me throw this at you. Are there things in the Bible that aren't true? No one wants to step into that. 
Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18. There's a reason that I want to explore these things, because we have this knee-jerk reaction. When someone says, well, I believe the Bible says this, what does the Bible mean when it says whatever it is we're claiming that it says? And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18, Solomon writes, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Is that true? I hope you'll say no, okay? I hope we know that through the narrative of Scripture that that statement that Solomon is making in this case is not a true statement. We are not like the animals, God has created us in his own image. Why? The scriptures declare that. Well, then how can the scriptures declare this? More importantly, okay, if this is not true, let me ask you this. Is this inspired? And the answer is yes. So now we have another question. How can something that is not true be inspired? See, there's no easy way to get through this. We're going to have to dig through some of these things. But every time we dig, we find treasure. Every time you delve into understanding more about what God has revealed in Scripture, you are going to come with a richer experience of who God is and how he speaks to us. And so when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes and we see Solomon is in this state of confusion where he's indulged himself in everything and has found it meaningless, he is giving us a clear understanding of what it's like to try and live your life in the fullness that the world can offer, but in a disconnection from the God who created him. And you get to the place where he does say, okay, I recognize that God is the purpose. But boy, it's a laborious and it's a fearful journey and it's meant to be so because it helps get us to understand more clearly what these things are. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, which would include Ecclesiastes, is God-breathed, inspired. I love that word, inspired and God-breathed. When you inhale, you're taking in God-breathed. We're taking in that understanding, that refreshing understanding of God in this area. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so there is a purpose for everything that we find in scripture. And so what makes the scriptures? Well, we know 
Paul writing here would be referring to all of the Old Testament. We know that Peter refers to Paul's writing as Scripture. We know that Scripture now includes all of the New Testament, the canon of the Old Testament, the canon of the New Testament. And there is a reason for that. I'm not going to go in depth into that. But basically, we wanted to have something that we could prove that was actually written by the people who would know. And so we had verifiable evidence that it was the New Testament writers or people who were with them who wrote the things that we have in the New Testament. And that's why some books were rejected. Later on, uh, other books were recognized as being historical value but weren't seen as the canon of Scripture. But all Scripture is God-breathed. So then, how do I know if something is true Or if it's inspired in another way. How do I interpret the things that I read? As I mentioned last week, why is it that we don't observe much of the laws in the Old Testament? There are laws that distinguish whether you will combine different types of cloth, wool and other cloth. And it says not to. You get up in the morning and say, oh no, that's wool, that's polyester, cannot cross the two. No, it's plaid and stripes, right? We, we think in that way. We don't divide on what it's made of. We look at how something looks. Why is it we don't worry about if it's kosher or not? The food. We don't worry about so many things that are in the Old Testament. Why not? Aren't they true? Aren't they inspired? Why do we choose some and not others? Why is it that we don't stone our children for disobedience? Well, because it's against the law and we'd go to jail. Otherwise, who knows what could happen? (laughs) Just joking. Uh, Anyway, you guys didn't laugh. Um, I want to look at something and try and help us to look at how we can interpret things and maybe see things clearer. Imagine if we found a Shakespearean play. And in this play, we have six scenes. Okay? So we have here, it's going to be scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four, scene five, and scene six. We have six scenes to this play. But we don't have all of scene five. We only have partial of scene five. Just a little bit, the rest is gone. There's a piece of tape here. How will we know what to do if we've got this? Well, we we give it to some actors and we tell them, look it, we've got a play, we've got all these scenes, but we're missing part of this scene. What I want you to do is improvise what happens in this scene, but I want you to be true to scenes one, two, three, four, the first part of five, and understanding six. You need to be true to those things so that how you do scene five lines up clearly with all these other scenes. So have that idea in your mind and see scene one as creation. Scene one, we know creation is good. We know that God made man and woman in his own image. So we're created in his image. We got that. 
We know that it's not good for the man to be alone. God has brought a, a companion from, for him and that man is supposed to work and to take care of the garden. So we'll see kind of a responsibility. I'll just put work here. And so we see all these things are a part of creation. Those are all good things. And then see scene two as the fall. Fall where there's a separation between man and God. And there's also a separation between man and his partner with the woman. And so now we see the fall. We see evil starts to come in. We see shame. We see Cain killing his brother. We see murder. And all the things that are a result of the fall. Scene three is Israel. God dealing with the people. And, and the reason I wanted to do this is because it, so much of it fits really in line with what we've been talking about through the book of Romans. The book of Romans dealt very clearly with Israel being the means by which God was going to save the world. Remember, who was Israel looking at to be the savior of the world? The nation of Israel, when they said, who is the one who's going to save us? It was Abraham, right? God made a covenant with Abraham. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so with Israel, we have Abraham. Just put Abe. We have a covenant. We have God establishing a new relationship and then God giving also some laws that give us understanding of his dealing with the nation of Israel. Scene four, we have Christ. Christ comes on the scene and Christ says that he is now the fullness of God's promise to the Israel. He is taking us back to restore things, to deal with the fall, to fulfill the law that Israel could not fulfill. And so we see here fulfillment. Chapter 5, we find, is the New Covenant, the New Testament writings, the church. We have our scripture, the New Testament, the new scriptures that we have but six is the renewal of all things. And we ain't there yet. So we're living in this portion of chapter five and we are expected to interpret our lives and the scriptures we've been given an understanding of how God is working. See, we, we usually try and simplify it where there's Old Testament, there's New Testament, but there's differences. There is a distinguishing amount of information that's unique to the creation, to the fall, that doesn't take place with Israel and its laws and its poetry, its prophecies that are pointing forward. And if we're going to look at these things, we need to recognize how it works. Otherwise, when you hear someone say, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And if you do, you shall be stoned to death. Is that okay with you guys? Or, yeah, the Bible says. Why don't we kill people for working on Saturday? The Bible says. 
You're not supposed to mix these kinds of garments, the, the wool and the other garments. Why don't we care about those things? Because the Bible says that you should. I mentioned last week, the Bible says women are supposed to cover their heads when they go to church. Why don't women wear hats when they go to church? Why are we interpreting these things? And you see, we already make a distinguishing understanding about what the Bible says. But do we understand why? Why don't we observe the Sabbath? And so I want to take at least one case study and try and put it in this context. And maybe we can do two. We'll see how time Allows. The first one, we, I want to talk about the Sabbath. Okay. We see the Sabbath initiated in scene one, in the creation. On the seventh day, God rested. It's not a whole lot said more about it here, but what does it mean? What is God resting from? Why is God resting? And you see, what it is showing us is that God is in relationship with the world he created in some way. If you were to say in that time that God created these seven works and see these seven works kind of as a, a just a, a work of art or even a phrase in a symphony, you know, here is his first phase and second, and then on the seventh he rested. What, what they'd be saying is, okay, this is kind of like building of a temple. Here is this God, and he's building a temple. On the first day he built this, second day he did this, third day he did this, and finally you get to the seventh day and he rested, and the idea would be he was resting in his temple, that God rested in the creation that he was a part of, that he was creating, he was involved with it. And so we see that the building of the temple and God resting is actually God being a part of and resting together with that which he made, his involvement with it. And we will see later on that the reason that was given has deeper meaning. But right now we see in scene one, creation, the Sabbath has a certain meaning. It has to do with God being a part of his creation. And then we jump into scene two, the fall. We don't see the Sabbath mentioned in the fall. We just see that there is this de decline of, of human beings. And then we move into scene three. And then the Sabbath shows up. It's a solid command. It's fierce. It's mandatory. It's something that is required. It is rooted in their two great narratives, which has shaped Israel. It's connected to the creation. And it's also connected to the Exodus. It's connected to the creation in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And it's connected to their Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Israel must also give a rest to those who are slaves. And so we start seeing that there is a deeper theme to this Sabbath. It has to do with a rest, but it's not only you taking a day off. It has to do with you giving people a day off. And not only is it you giving people a day off, it has to do with giving creation itself a day to rest. And so then it becomes... Agricultural, you're supposed to work the land for six years and then you give it a year rest. 
And then it's also connected to that of debts. If someone owes you money, they have six years where they're owing that. Then they have the seventh year, a year of jubilee where the land is restored. And then they get to be free of their debts. And so it starts to have a whole lot deeper meaning, this idea of the Sabbath. So Israel has to give their slaves a moment of rest. It is a sign that creation is going somewhere. Creation has intention involved with it. It has meaning. God is directly involved with it. And and just as the temple is a sacred space where they go to worship God, the Sabbath is a sacred time that they are to worship God as well. They are to acknowledge God. And this takes us back to the creation. God has created man with a purpose. God rested. It was part of his creation Man also is created to worship God. You are not made just to work. Now imagine all these societies coming and encountering these people. They don't have a day off. They look at these Israelites as just, they have a lazy day. They have one day, they don't do anything. They also have these weird laws. You can't eat certain kinds of food, which no doubt were healthy for them especially at the time without refrigerators and things like that. Now, you know, I mean, even though pork is delicious, we know that it taints a lot easier than other meats, right? You can't refreeze pork. (laughs) Don't eat any pork from Mary. Uh, And so there's different reasons why those things no doubt are there. But what it's doing is it's a sacred space where they're supposed to have a sacred time to worship their God. And so now Sabbath is pointing to something much deeper. And so in scene three, the Sabbath becomes vital. And it's vital because it's pointing to creation. It's vital because it's acknowledging God and giving God place. As you let the land rest, you're trusting God to provide for you. Just as God rested, we're giving the land the opportunity to rest. Many of the festivals also involved special Sabbaths, special jubilees where there would be 70 years Then they would have a special jubilee where, again, all the land would go back to its original owner. And so the whole meaning of 70 times 7 has a whole nother meaning. It's not just 490. It has to do with the jubilee of jubilees where things are restored back to where you don't owe those things again. And so we start seeing there's a deeper meaning to these things. It's pointing to a time of remission, uh, of debt that's eliminated. The Jubilee appears to be a moment of sacred time when humans are privileged to share in God's time, in God's redemptive purpose. It is the gift of the Creator to His people, particularly to the poor and the enslaved. It's a gift of justice to them. Your debts are now wiped out. All those things you owe those people is forgiven. And we see that because Israel did not keep the Sabbath, did not keep those laws that they were put into exile, into Babylon. And so Daniel talks about waiting the 70 years till there's the fulfillment, till they deal with the restitution of all the Sabbaths that they had violated. And so this is a big deal in this scene of the play. Why is it a big deal? Because it is connecting them to 
the time that is God's. I'm with you. I'm here with you. You need to recognize me with you. The Sabbath isn't just about not working for one day, but a recognition that we were created for more than work. We were created for worship. We were created to partake with God in this great scene, this great play. And so if we are to understand what happens to the Sabbath in the New Testament, we have to be clear on this picture. We have to have a clear understanding because when we come to scene four, Jesus seems to be pushing against the Sabbath. We come to Jesus and he's purposely healing people on the Sabbath. He could heal people any day he wanted to, but he specifically chose the Sabbath. Why would he choose, chose, choose to heal someone on that day? Knowing it's a, a violation of what their laws considered sacred. Why is he pushing against those things? He purposely healed on the Sabbath, saying that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So why is he striking against this God-given institution? The only explanation that will do, and it does really well, in fact, is that Jesus believed that he was inaugurating a new age towards which the entire Sabbath institution had been pointing all along this idea of time with God had come to announce that it was now taking place. He had come to announce and enact the Jubilee of Jubilees. The 70 times 7 is here. The Sabbath of Sabbaths. The time when God's purposes and God in human life would come together. Jesus acted as if he was the temple. Not only was he the temple in person offering people forgiveness on his own authority, he also acted as if he was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus claimed that he was making this time is fulfilled, God's kingdom is at hand. He's saying the purpose and intention of creation when God rested with his creation is now fulfilled here. And so when we start looking at these things here, we have to look at them through this lens. The way we interpret the Old Testament is through the New Testament. Well, why don't we keep the Sabbath? Because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Why don't we keep those laws that are here? Why do we keep some of the laws and not all of the laws? Why is it still important for us to deal uh, with ourselves sexually in the way that's pure? Uh, Why, you know, they... Get rid of these laws. Why don't we get rid of those laws too? How do we decide which laws to keep, which laws to get rid of? And we start seeing it points back to we have to keep consistent with the whole thing. Well, this God who created things good had intention with how he created it. We see what happens here with the fall. We see God instilling laws to try and get people back to understand. We see a fulfillment here. But all these things are telling us who God is and how we are to live. And the fulfillment of Christ dealing with this thing specifically in the area of the Sabbath is telling us that God has done something amazing among us. He's taking and fulfilling the prophecies that God had been giving, saying that from the very beginning, that God the Creator and creation, the redemptive project, 
that was launched in Exodus had reached its final destination. Israel's destiny, humankind's destiny, creation's destiny were being realized in Jesus. That's a big deal. As we went through Romans, we saw that what was God doing? He was, again, giving ownership back to a human being, right? That's what we're being created in God's image was all about. We were supposed to rule, take care of creation. We fell, creation went amok, and God said, okay, I'm going to bring that back. I'm going to use Abraham the seed of Abraham, the faithful Israelite, Jesus now is the one and I'm giving the responsibility. All power and authority is given to me, Jesus said, in heaven and in earth. God had given the reins back over to the perfect human being. His bodily presence was the reality to which the temple pointed. His human lifetime, more specifically, his short public lifetime or career, was the moment when God's time and the world's time overlapped, over or intersected, that at least was the implicit claim that he made, which seemed absurd to everyone there. That's why they wanted to kill him. You being a man, make yourself out to be God, they would say. Jesus' followers insisted that the claim had been made good because of the resurrection. He is who he said he is. Why do we know it? He's alive. He's risen from the dead, which carried its own sense of a new time, especially in John's treatment of the first day of the week symbolizes the launch of a new creation. So, again, dealing with the Sabbath, the most explicit statement of a long-waiting fulfillment of time is found in that moment in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes into the temple. He opens up the scriptures of Isaiah 61, which he saw itself looking back to that time where the captives were to be released. Today, he said, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying? He's saying, all that you've been waiting for, the captivity being set free, the day of Jubilee is now being fulfilled in your eyes. And they went crazy because of what he meant. He's saying, I am fulfilling all of this. So all these laws have to be interpreted through this scene of the play. We have to recognize it in that way. It meant that the whole of Israel's history, and with it the whole of cosmic history, had reached its ultimate jubilee. A time of freedom and peace, not only for Israel, but also as it became apparent for the rest of the world. And then we come into scene five. Okay, so the Sabbath, something God established, Christ fulfilled. How does the church now deal with the Sabbath? See, a lot of Christians look at Sunday as our new Sabbath. Well, we used to worship, you know, worship on Saturday and have a day off Saturday. Now we have Sunday. You realize that when they would worship on Sunday, they still had to work. It wasn't a day off. They didn't just take another day off. That The early church, most of them slaves, when they'd go and worship, they'd then have to go and work. The only reason they started meeting on that day of the week is because the synagogues wouldn't allow them in, and they wanted to do this. Well, this is when Christ rose. We're starting something new. But it wasn't connected to the tradition. 
You see, for so many years, we've made it a similar tradition just because it seemed good. I mean, for years, you couldn't shop on Sunday. Stores were closed. There were no sports that took place on Sundays. And some people are saying, yes, give us the good old days. Back when, you know, there was no Pop Warner football on Sundays and our kids had to go to church and those things. And then in the 60s, things started changing drastically, mostly driven by the economy and market and wanting for more days to shop, even though they don't have more money to shop with. Give them another day, maybe they'll shop anyway. And so there was a change in society and how things take place. Were we breaking a law? And why were Christians so upset wanting to insist that, no, you keep Sunday and stay closed? Is it so important? Are are you breaking some kind of Sabbath? As you look back, well, what, what did this mean here? And does it mean the same thing here? Well, it can't if Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. It's not necessary because we now have the presence of God with us. We now have the peace of God in us, fulfilled in Christ. So it's not at all the same thing. When the time had fully come, Paul writes in his probably earliest letter, the book of Galatians chapter 4, he says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law to take back all those things that we were required to do under this law. And so as we look at scripture, we have to see it through Christ fulfilling these things. When the reality arrived, not only was the sign no longer needed, the reality of, of Christ fulfilling those things, it had the potential of becoming a dangerous distraction from the new fact. In other words, Because we don't need this Sabbath anymore, to have it takes away the focus on who Christ is. N.T. Wright wrote, To go on looking at the alarm clock to see whether it is morning, yet when the risen sun is flooding the bedroom with golden light, is perverse. You don't look at the alarm clock if the sun is up. Is it daylight? There's the sun. Well, let me see what the clock is. See, Christ is the fulfillment. Do I need you know, to have this day of rest with God? Well, let me look at the law and see if I need it. No, you don't need that anymore. It's actually taking you away from that. The whole early Christian movement was predicated upon the belief that in Jesus, the new fact had arrived at last And the advantage signposts, though properly given by God to point to that, were now redundant. All those things God said, hey, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, are now we know. Why? Because it's here. Does that mean they're useless? No. We went through that with Romans. They helped us to understand. And remember, to start living here we have to look all the way back and see, okay, if I'm going to live out this play now where I'm at, i got to see how God worked originally, his intention. I see what the fall did, see why the law was given, see why Christ had to come, and now I have to walk in the awareness of all those things. And so studying the scriptures with this mindset gives us a deeper view 
of what God is doing. It gives us various viewpoints of God working in different times and in different ways to bring about the culmination to himself, to bring us back to a restoration. And by understanding that, it helps us to see these things. Paul denounces those who worship certain days and months and seasons and years in Galatians 4, which may reference to the Sabbath or not. Paul lists much of the Ten Commandments in Romans chapter 13, but he doesn't list the Sabbath. Why? Because now it's not necessary. Don't judge a person based on what they eat what they don't eat. If you feel that it's okay to eat that, then you need to be content in yourself, he says. What? Why doesn't he just tell us it's okay? Because he wants you and me to think it through, to be involved in this process and understand how God is working. It's not necessary to keep the Sabbath anymore. It's not necessary for them to eat the certain foods anymore. It's not necessary for them to be circumcised anymore. But that was our covenant. That's what separated us. It's not necessary. That's all been fulfilled through Christ. And so now we have to look at it in this picture. And so when we read something like a man should not usurp authority or a woman shall not usurp authority over a man, the Bible says so. What was the context that Paul was writing that in? At that time, the goddess Diana and the temple worship, the only ones who could be priests were women. And so in that city where that letter was given, those who were of spiritual authority were all women. Does that make a difference on how we translate that scripture? You bet it does. Oh no, well, I say the Bible says this, each one should be convinced in his own mind. You have to go through it and you have to study and you have to look at it from all these different places. We are not under the obligations and constraints of before, but there are certain things that actually are given by God and stay in character with who God is. Sabbath is appropriate in creation in Exodus because God rested on the seventh day and after completing his creative work, he commanded it because God brought Israel out of Egypt. But we start seeing in chapter 6 or scene 6 of this that now all things are restored in Revelation chapter 22 and that God now brings this restoration to completion. We are with him. We no longer need light because he is our light we will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light because he is indeed their light. The Lord God will give them that light and give them reign forever and ever. Will They will reign forever. Who will reign? God's people will reign forever and ever. What, what is that pointing to? That's where we started when Adam was given dominion over the earth. He's not like the animals. He was created in God's image. And so the whole Sabbath, the idea of rest, as it starts to play out throughout this play, we see that in our portion here, we really look through this portion and say, okay, those things were for these people because of this. 
But this is what God intended, and that's what God's going to bring us. And we're a little bit closer here, so this is how we're going to live that way. Let me briefly deal with one other area. And just I'm doing this to try and get an idea of, well, when I read something and I jump out, it jumps out at me and I say, wow, that seems strange. What is that about? How do I look at it? How do I interpret it? How do I say, okay, I know this is inspired by God, but how am I supposed to look at it? How am I supposed to read it? Because people say things and they pull a scripture out of its context and they throw it at you and say, this is what the Bible says. Yeah, but God was telling it to these people here. Solomon was writing it in this place here, in this condition here. And so another issue, this one isn't controversial, so I thought it would be pretty simple, but I thought it was pretty clear. Polygamy. I know that's all what you wanted to hear about tonight was polygamy. Marrying more than one woman. So we see this throughout Scripture because it's there. We don't see it in creation. God created Adam and then he created Eve. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of me, out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's this joining that takes place. We see that happen in the creation. Scene two, the fall. All of a sudden we have this guy Lamech, Genesis chapter four, and he takes on two wives. That guy Lamech. And in chapter four of Genesis, I'm going to turn there real quick because it's interesting what happens. We start seeing that it's not only him taking on two wives, we, we start to see an attitude if you will, about Lamech. In chapter 4, verse 19 through 24, Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah, A to Z, he got there. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes, so again, jubilation, it's kind of coming from that person. Zella also had a son, Tublacain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tublacain's sister was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zella, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. Guy's got an identity already, huh? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, seventy seven times. We see that Lamech has got this kind of disposition where he's now killed some people. We see he's married a couple of wives. We start to see in this area the decline. We see men taking themselves wives. Scene three, Israel comes into play. And we start to see that there are, especially in the kings, men taking themselves many wives, Solomon being the one known most of all. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was the king of Israel. Well, that's against God's law, right? God says you can't have any wives. Well, in Deuteronomy, God makes a provision in the law 
Chapter 21, verse 15, he says, If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves, in preference of his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. So God says, no, you can't just play favorites here. You're responsible. You have to have these responsible responsibilities. But he doesn't say don't get married to more than one wife. He tells them they're not to have a lot of wives or that they will take their hearts away from God. But he doesn't put a law that says you can't. And that troubles a lot of people. Why doesn't he say that? Well, what God does do is allow us to see what takes place with these people who have more than one wife. We see it through the book of Genesis. What happened with Abraham when Sarah said, take my servant and have a wife with Tamar? And then he had a son through him. And what happened? Did that work out well? No, it didn't. Jacob had two wives. He was tricked, Leah and Rachel. He loved Rachel, didn't love Leah. Leah had a kid, had another kid, had another kid. Rachel started to despise Leah because he didn't have any kids. Then Rachel had a kid, and that became his favorite kid. Did that go well? No, it didn't. Remember, we start seeing that there is a narrative that's teaching us something. And this is another point. We say the scripture, the authority of scripture, but so much of the scripture is a narrative. How can a narrative be authoritative? It's authoritative by what we learn from the narrative. And so as we start to read these things, we start to say, wow, it started off good. Wow, Lamech was a jerk. Wow, there's a lot of problems having a lot of wives. Solomon's wives took his heart away from the Lord. And then we come to Christ. And in scene four, Jesus points us back to the beginning in Mark chapter 10. He says, it was because of your hearts were hardened that Moses wrote you this law, the one that we talked about. It's because their hearts were hardened. But in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man leave his father and mother and united to his wife and the two will be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one What God has joined together, let no one separate. And so now we come to Christ and we start to see that there is a looking back to what was intentional. Have you learned from all this what God has really intended? Or do you just need God to say, you shall not do this? In the narrative, we see the authoritative instruction of God giving us a clear understanding. And then Jesus points us back to the creation And then as the church moves on, well, what is then going to happen in the church? We start to see that this idea of one wife becomes the new narrative. And so in Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Does that mean he couldn't have had a divorce? No, it means there were people out there that had a couple of wives. Now imagine this. You're a pagan. You have three wives and you become a follower of Christ. I'm now a Christian. Well, you're supposed to have one wife. What do I do with the other two? 
you just get rid of them? Now what? They're living on the streets? So how are we supposed to interpret something like that? And so you see some of Paul's writings, especially to the Corinthian church, if they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. But this person isn't supposed to have a position of leadership. Why? Because God is trying to frame us to look more like what he intended us to be. And so the husband of one wife is giving us the character that we we want. Now, there are still some societies that it's okay to have more than one wife, but it's becoming fewer and fewer, and it's not because they're all Christian societies. Why is it? Well, I think they're learning just like Abraham learned, just like Jacob learned, just like David learned. David and his wives caused him a lot of problems, as did Solomon. They're learning that this really isn't what's best for us, which is what the model was originally. And so now we start living, and it's kind of interesting because people think the Old Testament is very restrictive, but here we see in this new covenant, this new beginning, where it's actually more restriction in this area than there was in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's trying to bring us back to an intention. And so as we look through the scripture, we start looking at this whole narrative. This is what God is doing. God has created things good. He's trying to get us back to a place of good. He's trying to get us back into fellowship with him. He's established some things to help us to connect to him. And he's fulfilled those things in Christ so that we can fully connect to him. And so when I'm going to read a passage in scripture, I have to keep this whole narrative in my mind so that I can interpret it correctly. So that if I'm reading something, even in the New Testament, in this portion that we have, why is it being written? How can I get a fuller understanding based on what I know here and what I know God is wanting to do here? And so that gives me a deeper understanding because there is a lot that wasn't written in the New Testament. If you think the Bible says everything that needs to be written about raising children... then why is there a multi-million dollar business in the Christian books about how to raise children? Oh, we have insights. Don't provoke your children to wrath. But then it doesn't say a whole lot. Well, how much TV time do I give them? The Bible doesn't say. Should I let them play video games? Should I let them have a cell phone? What age does a kid get a cell phone? Bible, I'm living over here and I'm having the ad lib. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do and someone pulls a scripture from here. says, this is what the Bible says. Yeah, but I'm living over here in this society. I can't stone my kid to death. I can't do those things and it's not going to work in this context. So how do I... Raise my child here based on all the things I know with the little information that I'm given in this place. And God wants us to live based on what we know. How do I know? Well, we have to get to understand the God who's revealed himself through all these things because all scripture is inspired. God has been teaching us through this narrative. He's been revealing himself and us throughout this story. 
And so now we find ourselves having to do a little, you know, ad-libbing and and improvisation here in this chapter 5, but we aren't without knowledge. And so when someone starts coming across with a doctrine that says God, you know, only loves certain people, well, we can say, wait a second, that's not what I see throughout here. I see God using Abraham to try and reach the world, how can you say it's very exclusive? It's only for this certain, you know, type of person, nationality, or only those who believe a certain way. God was more inclusive than that. And so I can make a decision based on what I know of the whole. The problem is we don't like to look at the whole. We want the answer now. And so when Paul says everyone should be convinced in their own mind, we get upset. I don't want to be convinced in my mind. I want you to tell me. Just tell me. You know, Paul. Tell me. Is it right or is it wrong? goes, be convinced. Be persuaded in your own mind. Man, that requires work. That requires me to delve in. That requires me to pay attention. And God is trying to tell us something to get us to a place of restoration, to get us to understand that he is our light and this is what we want to do. And everything we do needs to be something that brings us to a place of him. So now how I conduct myself in business, well, it's got to be in the character of the God who's revealed himself through all this way. Because it doesn't tell me, and this portion here, it doesn't tell me if I can do all these different types of businesses or not businesses. What's required of me? Well, you have enough information in the character of God to be able to put those things together. But unless we do that, we are going to jump to conclusions. And so when you go to read a book in the scriptures, if you're going to read the book of Ephesians, or the book of Corinthians, first or second. Get a little devotional or a little commentary that gives you a little history. Find something that will help you to understand a little bit of the background with that people so that you can know why is Paul writing this to those people. Because there will be some things that apply. And then when you hear in Corinthians where he says, if a man has a virgin, he does well to keep her that way. You go, what? What does that mean to me today? And then you find out how things were in Corinth and what Paul was trying to say. And it might be a little shocking when you find out that part of the practices in the Corinthian church included ancestral relationships. And Paul is trying to push people away from that. And you don't take something that he's saying to those people and say, oh, well, I can be married and we're just going to, she's still going to be a virgin. That wasn't what he was saying at all. But unless you understand that, you won't know that. How do we interpret these things? You have to understand the narrative, the meta narrative, the big picture. And that's why Romans is so difficult, because there's so many narratives inside this big meta-narrative. And the scripture is the same way. If you just pull out the book of Corinthians and start blasting it at people, 
is it even applicable to them? Well, it's inspired, just like Ecclesiastes is. Is it applicable? And if so, how so? How do we take the things that are there and put them into our lives? And, and here's the great part. When you start understanding the inspiration and the depth at which God is communicating to people all over the place, you start getting a richer understanding of who God is. And it's incredible. And it's beautiful. And you see that God is trying to reach everybody. And God has something for everybody. He has something to communicate to people like Lamech. He has something to communicate to people like Solomon. He has something to communicate to the people who are living in Corinth. Or to us. And as we start understanding it more fully, we start getting a richer grasp of who God is. And it should make you even hungrier to understand. Because then when you say, wow, this means something totally different. You know, there is one passage, I'm forgetting where it is, I think Philippians, where Paul says, I, everyone should mind their own business. When I hear mind your own business, I always think, I mean, you know, hey, mind your own business, stay out of mind business. Because that's how I interpret mind your own business. But when you find out that it means everyone is supposed to do what they can to support themselves, it means something totally different. And now it has a whole new richness to it. Everyone's to mind their own business. That's right. Joe, mind your own business. Get on that and take care of yourself, man, so that you don't need something from other people. You're not indebted to other people. Mind your own business. And now it means something totally different, but much better. And so let's take the time to research what's being said. If you want commentaries that are helpful on research, for the New Testament, I like William Barclay as far as history. William Barclay is very good and historical. For understanding the authority of the New Testament, N.T. Wright, um, his book is probably the best um, that I've read. Um, it, it's a long read, but it's a good one. It's uh, Scripture and the Authority of God. I believe that's what it's called. Um, or authority, Let me find it for you. But it's Scripture and the Authority of God by N.T. Wright. Great book. Anything by N.T. Wright is great. I agree with a lot of what he says. And he's very um, more traditional than I would have thought. But anyway... Um, or that I would, you would think that I would like. But anyway, he's very good. So those are some things that you can read. Just start reading some of these things and find out what's going on. You know, why do we do things the way we do them? Why can't we do things that way? Ask those questions. You're supposed to ask those questions. You're supposed to inquire. Why? Because we're living in this part here where we're trying to put together the missing pieces. And unless I ask the questions of all this, I won't know exactly how I'm supposed to move forward. Improvisation, I have to have an understanding of my character, the character who I'm playing, the God who I'm serving, so that I can do the things that he wants me to do. 
Because it's not just do this, do this, do this, do this. No, it's live like this. Okay, so what should I do in this arena? Well, what is the character of the person you're supposed to be? How would that play out in this scenario? And then you change the way you act in every scenario because of who you're supposed to be in this play. Any questions? So Jesus didn't fulfill what the Sabbath was there to fulfill? Well, that's true. That's definitely true. I mean, but is understanding what the Sabbath was and what we are are two different things. In other words, we go to church not because it is a law that we have to keep. We go to church and on Sunday because it was God doing something new. And so it's connecting with that new thing. We don't forsake the gathering of together. That's something we're supposed to do. It's there to encourage each other, but it's totally different than what the Sabbath was. Well, I think you're talking about a lot of good things and good traditions that were nice, but again, understanding the difference between what the Sabbath was and what it is for us to go to church and have family time are two different things. You know, it's not a, a necessity. It doesn't matter if we meet on Sunday or on Tuesday. Well, it is now, but it hasn't always been. And so, and that's the point is, okay, why do we meet? Well, because we're here to celebrate him, Christ. Well, when can you do it? You can do it any day. You can do it any day. Yeah, you know, we have that kind of connection any time that we want. But it's not about the day. The day was pointing to the person who gave us the connection with God that they had been waiting for, the rest, the peace with God. And so, any day. But I mean, yeah, it's a great thing to get together and it's, we meet together. But you see, we, we have a hard time breaking traditions. Traditions mean a lot to us, especially in the Western world. And we have a lot of traditions that could be hindering us from reaching people because we care more about our traditions than we do about the commission. You know, if our tradition is Sunday is when we meet, but there's a whole, you know, world to reach, there's a whole mission field on Sundays if you go to Pop Warner football games. Is it worth changing your day if you can do enough ministry on Sunday? You betcha. Because the people are more important than the day. How do I know that? Because of this guy. What he said and how he dealt with the days. Sabbath wasn't made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, the content is there. And so then you have something like uh, sexual promiscuity. Okay, We see it throughout this history, and then this portion here, it's written down. We're to flee sexual immorality. Okay, we're, we're not to have those things be a part of us. And we see the results of it. Again, the narrative starts to become authoritative as we see what it takes place there. And so we know here, okay, this is how I'm supposed to live based on what information we've been given. Okay, and, and I mean, this little portion here, till whenever scene six starts, is pretty intense. It's pretty, you know, there's a lot of information here. It's not like we just get a little bit. You know, we got the whole New Testament that's full of amazing things, amazing instruction, amazing insights, revelation of who God is. And so we've got a lot to go on, but that's part of, again, how we interpret the rest of this scene.
That's a great, great analogy. I mean, we do that with TV all the time, right? That's why we like some of these programs is because they surprise us. What? He did what? That's so out of character. Yeah, they do that on purpose because you, you were hooked on the character and then they change it. Like, oh, no, I can't believe that. She doesn't change. She, Judge Judy doesn't change. She looks younger. How did that happen? Anyway. <laughs> Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, does that make sense to you guys, kind of what I'm saying? Okay. You know, this isn't kind of a bio, this isn't, here, I'm going to give you some, I don't know, feel good kind of message. Sorry, Corinne, I didn't make everyone feel good tonight. But I wanted to give you understanding. You know, I'm, I, and I also kind of your testing ground because I'm speaking at the pastors' conference in La Paz and Vizcaino on Second Timothy chapter three, and I'm trying to portray how I'm going to do that because I want to give a real inclusive. What does it mean when it says all Scripture is inspired, is God breathed? Because I want to cover that because I don't want to just, you know, the, right after that it says preach the word. And I, I already know what that Bible study is going to be, okay? And it's so different than what it would be if I was teaching it, you know? I'm not going to go preach the Bible. I'm going to preach the gospel because that's what the word means. When you say the word of God is alive and powerful, what is the word of God? It's the gospel. It's not the scripture. It's the gospel. The scriptures point to the gospel. Before there were the words written, there were the lives lived. The words that are written are based on the lives that were lived. Yeah, they're God-breathed. Yeah, they're there for our instruction, for reproof, rebuke, correction. All those things that Paul told Timothy are things he learned all throughout this narrative. Oh, it's able to make you wise. If you will learn from Abraham and his mistakes, if you will learn from Jacob and what he did, if you will learn from Joseph, you'll be wise. And again, it's a narrative. And so the scripture is God-breathed. It's a gift from God. What does that mean? Is it all true? You know, there's that one passage where Jacob, his flocks, Grow and it's just, he's like has the goats eat certain bark. You guys know that portion in, Je- in Genesis. It's like if they eat the the bark that has certain stripes, then they get this. I always looked at it and go, "Is that true, or is that just something he did?" Or what about the person at the pool of Siloam? I have no one to put me in the pool because when the water stir, the angel comes there. Did an angel really come, or are they just writing about that? Was there an angel? Why didn't we hear about that angel? Other places, or is that just their belief in Jesus? doesn't even deal with that. He just says, get up, walk. You don't have to wait for an angel, okay? Because angel ain't coming, but I'm here. And so many things like that. I read the scripture and I don't have to just say, yep, that's what the Bible says. It's like, well, why is it there? Maybe it's just there to give us an understanding of what was happening at the time. You can ask those questions, You're not a heretic for asking questions. You need to ask questions. You need to study so that you can know those things more clearly. It's important. You know, I don't think less of the scriptures. I think more of them. 
I get more from them. They guide my life more clearly because I, I'm looking at it trying to say, what's going on here? What are you doing, God? Well, look back. What have I done? What is my character? What am I going to do? And how does this intertwine? Okay, this is what I think is important. This is what I think you're trying to say. And that's why, you know, it blows my mind when Paul says each one has to be convinced in his own mind. Can you imagine if we said that with most of the things today? You guys, just be convinced whatever's in your own mind how you're going to do these things. Can't do that. You can't give us that kind of freedom. I can't trust the Holy Spirit to teach you. We need to. We need to. God thinks more of you than most people or pastors think of you. Just telling you the truth. God sees more potential in you than most people will see in you. Probably more potential than you see in yourself. And God has given you his scriptures that are breathed so that you can be a person who is wise, rebuked, instructed in righteousness. You don't need anyone to teach you because you have the Spirit of God in you. God gives us teachers to help us, but then he just ignites what he puts in you so that you can grow, so that you can lead, not so that you can just follow. Everyone here is meant to be a leader in some way, somehow. It might just be in your family. It might be in your place of work. It might be with your children. I don't know. But God has given enough information on who he is and trusted you with enough to be a person who changes the world you live in. And if we would see that, we'd have a different world. That's what changed the world of the New Testament. They believed it. So Sunday, believe we're going to go there. Anyway, let's pray. Father, I pray that this is an encouragement again to help us to understand more fully who you are, to hunger after that and, and to look and to ask the questions, to inquire of you, God, what you are trying to say, to, to read and research and study, to find people who speak in ways that are clear and understanding to us and to fill our hearts and our minds with them. Lord, for so many years, I think I filled my mind with just the same things because this is what I believe, this is what I was told to believe. And then when I started asking questions, a whole nother world opened up, a whole nother insight of who you are opened up to me and I became even more in love with you. I desire to know more about you and to serve you even more fervently. And Lord, I pray we would ask those questions that we would seek, that we would knock, knowing that you will answer, we will find, and you will open it up to us. Thank you again for this time. Lord, bless, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <laughs>